Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. 2,000 years ago at a place called Skull Hill, an itinerant preacher-teacher was executed. For two millennia, poets and preachers, artists and musicians, believers and scoffers, have tried to understand exactly what happened at Skull Hill. It has been viewed from every angle. Every word that tells the story has been scrutinized and examined, trying to understand what exactly happened at Skull Hill. Was it tragedy or triumph? Was it evil or good? Was it divine or human? What happened at Skull Hill? What do you see there? Now, talking about seeing, I have another question about what you see. What do you see when you look at the dress? The dress, that's how it became known. It all started in late 2015 when a couple, Grace and Keir Johnston, in Scotland were getting married. The bride's mother went to Cheshire Mall, north of Chester, England, looking for the dress that she would wear to her daughter's wedding. She found a dress, took a picture of it, sent it to her daughter, and asked her how it looked. They couldn't agree on what color the dress was. Was it white with gold lace, or was it blue with black lace? They couldn't decide. In fact, the disagreement continued in the family all the way up almost into the wedding ceremony itself. There was a, a band that was going to play, a Scottish band, one of the members of which was a member of the bride's family. And so because of the disagreement, because of the fact that they couldn't see it the same, one of the band members, that member who was a member of the bride's family, then posted on social media the dress and just asked people what color it was. Well, you know the rest. It, as they say, broke the internet. First on Tumblr and then on Facebook and then hashtags and memes and it encircled the globe. This question over what you see in the dress. In fact, the Washington Post would say it was the little debate that divided the planet. What color is the dress? It was all over media. In fact, there were people like the vision scientist Paul Wallace who said, this disagreement is actually beginning to affect the way we scientists and cause us to re-question the way we scientists view vision studies. And you know that the celebrities had to get into it as well, posting it on their sites and asking and giving opinions about the color of the dress. You know the celebrities, the names, the Katy Perry's of the world, and the Taylor Swift's, and the Demi Lovato's, and the Kanye West's, and the David Duchovny's, and the Doug Mace's, and the... Actually, that kind of got away from me. But the celebrities were asking, what color is the dress? It was a huge debate. Consider this. At its height, when it was posted on Tumblr, there were 14,000 views 
per second. Second, 840,000 views per minute. In fact, I want to read you what one of the social media monitoring sites had to say about it. This is Brandon Silverman, CEO of social media monitoring site CrowdTangle. This is what he said about the dress. We've seen other stories go viral, but the sheer diversity of outlets that picked it up and were talking about it was unlike anything we had ever seen. Everyone from QVC to Warner Brothers to local public libraries to Red Cross affiliates were all posting links to it on their social accounts. That kind of diversity in who's sharing a story pretty much never happens, and certainly never to that degree. Even in the years since, and with a million different people trying to replicate it, nothing has come close. What color is the dress? Or more specifically, what do you see? And that's my question for you today. What do you see? Oh, it's a much more meaningful, consequential question. Because I'm not asking you about a dress. I'm asking you about the execution of that teacher-preacher at Skull Hill. What do you see? Triumph or tragedy? Good or evil? Divinity or humanity? What do you see? So much rides on that question. And there were many who saw it. We've been following the eyewitness accounts of some who were there. And today we continue. We pick up the story today just after the cross has been laid on the back of Simon of Cyrene. As he staggers under the cross, it has freed Jesus to stagger a bit more freely down the Via Dolorosa on his way to Calvary. Luke tells us, that it was a large crowd, many people followed him. I wonder who was there. The religious elite were there, of that you can be sure. After all, they were primarily responsible for what was happening. They would have been there exulting, high-fiving, fist-pumping. They were there. The Roman guard was there. They were the ones who were going to execute this sentence. They were there having severely injured Jesus, having roughed him up in the extreme. They were there now to see this through to its bitter end. The pilgrims were there. Those who were now flowing in toward the city of Jerusalem from where they had camped all around that area, they were now encountering the grim spectacle. You know who wasn't there? If you survey the crowd carefully, the ones that are not there are the very ones who said to Jesus, we will not leave you. We will fight for you. We will die rather than allow them to do anything at all to you. His disciples, they're not there. There's one other group that's there. It's a group of weeping witnesses. Women who are weeping at the sight that is before them, they see clearly what is happening, and it's tragic. That's what they see it as, tragedy. They are torn up at the torn up man before him, before them. They see this man who has accepted the rejected, now being rejected himself. The man who had talked about healing and wholeness is now broken 
and on his way to certain death. And they weep. Why? Because they see tragedy. We read the account in Luke's Gospel, the 23rd chapter, Luke chapter 23, and we begin reading with verse 26. Here's what it says. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. What do you see at Calvary? What did these weeping witnesses, these women, see? Certainly they would have seen a man who was one of their people. In fact, a man of the people. He was part of their nation, part of their, their, their tribe, you might say. And yet now he was being brutally tortured, about to be executed by the Roman occupiers. It was tragic. It was a horrific spectacle. And as they view that tragedy, they beat their breasts. That's what the word means. And weep loudly. That's what the other word means in the original. Because they see tragedy. Now, it is also possible that these women had known Jesus or known of him. It's possible that they were followers of his. Possible that they had followed his ministry, had seen the, the, the sick healed, had seen the hungry fed, had seen the rejected welcomed. It's possible that there had been born within their hearts a yearning, a desire for the messianic kingdom. Could he be the one? If so, then they not only saw the grim spectacle, of the occupiers executing one of their own, they also saw the death of their dreams and messianic hopes, tragic in the extreme. They saw tragedy, and so they wept. What do you see? Jesus saw them in the midst of his own intense suffering, he spoke to them. He spoke to them in language that to some has been a bit cryptic. But he said to them, are you weeping because of what's happening to me? Weeping because you see this as tragic? Are you weeping because this tragedy is affecting your lives? Daughters of Jerusalem, if that's the case, you don't know tragedy. Because the tragedy that lies ahead of you is intense in the extreme compared to what's happening to me. I'm but a green tree. 
A green tree will burn, but not that much. What happens when that green tree becomes dead wood, driftwood? It will blaze with fury. That day is coming. Because if this is what this empire will do to a man who preached love and peace, imagine what they will do to an entire city that is filled with sedition and revolutionary violence. That's when you will see tragedy. I want to read to you. Read to you. It's probably the best depiction I've encountered of what happens when the city of Jerusalem is destroyed by Titus in A.D. 70. I go back to Simon Segab Montefiore to read this description of what happened. This is the time Jesus is referring to when he says, what will they do when the tree is dry? Listen to these words. Around the walls, there were gruesome scenes that must have resembled hell on earth. Thousands of bodies putrefied in the sun. The stench was unbearable. Packs of dogs and jackals feasted on human flesh. In the preceding months, Titus had ordered all prisoners or defectors to be crucified. Five hundred Jews were crucified each day. The Mount of Olives and the craggy hills around the city were so crowded with crucifixes that there was scarcely room for any more nor trees to make them. Titus's soldiers amused themselves by nailing their victims splayed and spread-eagled in absurd positions. So desperate were many Jerusalemites to escape the city that as they left, they swallowed their coins to conceal their treasure, which they hoped to retrieve when they were safely clear of the Romans. They emerged puffed up with famine and swelled like men with dropsy, but if they ate, they burst asunder. As their bellies exploded, the soldiers discovered their reeking intestinal treasure troves, so they started to gut all the prisoners, eviscerating them and searching their intestines while they were still alive. But Titus was appalled and tried to ban these anatomical plunderings. To no avail, Titus's Syrian auxiliaries who hated and were hated by the Jews with all the malice of neighbors relished these macabre games. The cruelties inflicted by the Romans and the rebels within the walls compare with some of the worst atrocities of the 20th century. Stomach-turning. Mind-numbing. When Jesus speaks to the weeping witnesses, he says, if you weep because you think this is tragic, you don't know tragedy because of what is yet to come. What do you see at Calvary? The women saw tragedy, and so they wept. And tragic it was indeed, without question. But was that all that was there? Was there something more, something that the women focused on tragedy did not detect? Something at a deeper level? Jesus doesn't refer to it here on this day. But others will come after him who will not only refer to it, but will write about it extensively. They will, they will take this term, the cross, 
and it will become one of the most precious terms in the Christian heritage. It's a strange thought, actually, because Jesus had used that originally to symbolize death to self and maybe even literal death. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that he said to his followers, if any of you would be my disciples, let that one take up their cross and follow me. Now, because of the passage of two millennia of time, because of our over-familiarity with the language and the imagery, we are spared the jarring shock that that statement would have been to the original hearers. It was horrible. They despised Roman crucifixion. It was shameful in the extreme. In fact, if we want to contextualize it, it would be like thinking that Jesus walked among us today and made the same statement, except he said, take up your electric chair, take up your lethal injection, take up your noose, take up your firing squad, and follow me. It's stunning. Terrible. And yet, because of the complexity of what happened at that place called Skull Hill. That term was redeemed to talk about the deeper level of what took place there. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who will write about these matters extensively, will one day write to his friends in Galatia and will say to them, God forbid that I should glory in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ, my Lord. What is Paul saying? Is he glorying in that over which the weeping witnesses wept? Is he mocking their sorrow? What is Paul saying? Is he exulting, honoring, glorying in the cross? The reality is there are two distinct things that are happening at Calvary that day, two distinct realities that we must see. It's captured well in the words from the book Desire of Ages, Ellen White, who says this, At the cross of Calvary, love and selfishness stood face to face. Here was their crowning manifestation. Christ had lived only to comfort and bless, and in putting him to death, Satan had manifested the malignity of his hatred against God. He made it evident that the real purpose of his rebellion was to dethrone God and to destroy him through whom the love of God was shown. Love and selfishness stood face to face, she says. Two realities are present at the cross. Those have often been spoken of as the cross and the crucifixion. I want to take you back to the meaning of those two realities that are happening at the same time at Skull Hill. I was thinking I ought to remind our congregation, our Loma Linda University Church family of this every single year at Easter. Because a, a failure to understand this is to miss the depth and the riches of Calvary. But to capture it is to see the glory of that moment. You see, the cross is the love of God. 
The crucifixion is the hatred of humanity. The cross is God's glory. The crucifixion is human shame. The cross is God at his highest. The crucifixion is humanity at its lowest. The cross is the magnanimous glory of God. The crucifixion is the offensive repugnance of humanity. The cross is God saying, I will die for you. The crucifixion is humanity saying, we will kill you. The cross is God at his best, at his highest. The crucifixion is humanity at our worst, at our lowest. And as one preacher put it, the supreme manifestation of the love of God and the supreme manifestation of the hatred of Satan were both made in greatest evidence in one concentrated place called Calvary in the person of one man named Jesus on the same Friday called Good at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. One place, two realities. One person, two experiences. That's the cross. That's the crucifixion. To only see one is to not really see Calvary. What do you see at Calvary? The late Henry Nouwen, the writer, philosopher, Christ follower, told the story of a family he actually knew in Paraguay. South American country of Paraguay. The father was a physician, was, was well-to-do, but he had not lost touch with those in need. And he spoke up, he spoke up clearly and forcefully against the military regime at that time, spoke up of their abuses, spoke up of the things that they had done to the poor, the bereft in his country. That military regime did not take to that well. They hit that doctor, that man who loved his family at the place where it hurt the most, they kidnapped his son. His son was not only kidnapped, but he was beaten, he was tortured, he was ruthlessly murdered. The enraged townsfolk demanded that his funeral be turned into a protest march. We will join you, we will come together, we will stand against this evil regime. But the father said no. He didn't want that. What he did do was this. He took that broken body of that boy he loved as it was taken from the prison. It was still bloody, bruised, filled with scars at the electric shots, the shocks, the cigarette burns, the beating. He left his boy lying on that blood-soaked prison mattress. And he simply lay him in public so that people could see what this regime had done. The Christian writer Philip Yancey, after recounting the story, writes these words of reflection. 
Isn't that what God did at Calvary? The cross held Jesus' body, naked and marked with scars, exposed all the violence and injustice of this world. At once, the cross revealed what kind of world we have and what kind of God we have. A world of gross unfairness and a God of sacrificial love. What were those words from Desire of Ages? At the cross, love and selfishness stood face to face. Here was their crowning manifestation. What is it that Yancey says? God of glory, a world of unfairness. What do you see at the cross? The women, the weeping witnesses, saw tragedy. And so they wept. Do you see tragedy? Or do you see triumph? Or do you see both? I asked you, what color is the dress? Is it white with gold laces or blue with black laces? The Washington Post said it was a little dress that divided the planet. Do you know what the truth is? The truth is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter one bit what color that dress is. But I'll tell you what does matter. What does matter profoundly is what you see at Calvary. The cross displays the love of God. The crucifixion displays the hatred of humanity. Do you see them both? Maybe we ought to learn from the weeping witnesses to weep over the tragedy of Calvary. And maybe we ought to learn from the Apostle Paul to weep at gratitude over the cross of Christ. Because how we see Calvary determines everything else. It determines how we understand sin, how we understand salvation, how we understand ourselves. It determines how we understand God. What do you see at Calvary?